this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the third episode of our Medical Legal Death Investigation special release season, Just Science interviews Bobby Joe O'Neill, the Chief Deputy Coroner of Charleston, South Carolina, who discusses the unique skills that forensic nurses can provide as coroners. Listen along as we discuss how Charleston County has learned to deal with mass fatality scenes and infant deaths by creating multidisciplinary teams, developing consistent interviewing methods, and other helpful techniques that the community can easily adapt. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today, we are at the IACMA meeting, the International Association for Coroners and Medical Examiners meeting in Las Vegas, Nevada, in late July of 2018. We have a co-host Today, uh, the venerable chief scientist of the FTCOE and the Center for Forensic Science at RTI, Jerry Ropera-Miller. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks, John. Good to be here. And also our guest today is Bobby Jo O'Neill with the Charleston County Coroner's Office. Uh, she is the chief deputy coroner there, has been since September of 1998 to today on the board of directors for the International Association for Forensic Nurses, a board-certified death investigator by the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators and author of the book Investigating Infant Deaths. Welcome to the podcast, Bobby Joe. Thank you for having me, John. It's good to be here. We were talking before the podcast, Bobby Joe. You actually started off in Iowa and wound up in the crazy confines of the greater metro Charleston area of South Carolina. Did you uh, start off as somebody who was interested working in forensic science? I'm really kind of interested in the combination that you've made, which is the combination of being a forensic nurse with death investigation. Sure. Well, my background actually started in the healthcare industry. So I went to nursing school and uh, graduated from Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and wanted to help people. And that's sort of the avenue that I entered. I really didn't have sort of an interest or even a knowledge, I would say, of forensic science at that time. That would have been back in, you know, 1994. And then my family stayed in Nashville. I worked at Baptist Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, and I started doing hospice nursing. And so when I would go to the home of a hospice patient who died, I would have to call the coroner's office to get permission to release that individual to the funeral home. And I started questioning why I had to do that. I was the one that was there at the house. I was the one who assessed the patient, and I couldn't quite understand why I had to call a coroner on a phone and get permission to release them. And so that started my interest in forensics at that point. I attended my first conference uh, hosted by the International Association of Forensic Nurses, got sort of a basic understanding of forensic science and how nurses were starting to enter that field. And then my family relocated to Charleston, South Carolina, not related to that. And I started working at the Medical University of South Carolina 
And then a friend of mine told me that the coroner in South Carolina at that time was a nurse. And so there was a nurse coroner who had been elected in Charleston County. And so I reached out to her and she uh, gave me some great advice. She immediately said, have you ever worked in an emergency room or a surgical trauma ICU? And I said no and quit my job the next day, moved to the emergency room. I followed directions very well and worked in an emergency room for a couple of years, uh, which is then where I started interacting with trauma victims coming into the emergency room, sexual assault victims that were coming in there. And at that time, we didn't have a team to handle that stuff. And so I started working with some other nurses and physicians and created a sexual assault team for the Medical University of South Carolina. And during that process, the coroner, uh, Susan Tuning at the time, uh, we worked on some projects. And then in 1998, she actually asked me to come work for her in the coroner's office. So that's sort of how I transitioned. Uh, I wouldn't say I had a great plan. It just sort of happened. Well, that's fine. You know, uh, I see that you, you live in Mount Pleasant. Is that right? I do. I live in Mount Pleasant, which is uh, in Charleston County. It's a suburb of the city of Charleston, but it's all in Charleston County. Mount Pleasant actually has a long and storied history with the National Institute of Justice. Uh, Tommy Sexton, who was the police chief there when you actually started as the chief deputy coroner in the late 90s, wound up running the Law Enforcement and Corrections Technology Center that was in Charleston and then went to uh, D.C. and worked for NIJ itself on wireless communication systems and other public safety technology stuff. So Mount Pleasant has a very long history with NIJ. Very good. Well, it's good to know that connection. And our co-host today actually has a long history in both sides of the work that you've been involved in uniquely. As listeners will will know, uh, Jerry actually has worked in the medical examiner's office in in North Carolina, but she's also well-known to the forensic nursing community as well. Definitely working with the community to stand up best practices and improve awareness and education for those policies and practices that the community would like to see more consistent when you go from jurisdiction to jurisdiction so that when an investigation is being done, that hopefully there are certain procedures that are being maintained and performed. So how prevalent are forensic nurses in death investigation? I know you said that, you know, your boss is a forensic nurse and then you have you. And so South Carolina seems to have that following. But are they prevalent throughout the U.S.? Well, I think uh, we've grown over the years. Uh, When I started in in the office back in 98, there was just really a handful of nurses around the the country, or at least that I know of. I mean, it hadn't been a group that had come together before. So there really wasn't a way to document how many nurses were working in the medical legal death investigation field. Not really until some of us joined IAFN that we started to be able to see, okay, there's other nurses around the country that are either elected officials who ran for office or started working in an office. I think today there's probably not a great way to have a correct number on how many nurses are in that field right now. And I think that nurses are a really untapped resource in this specialty. As far as South Carolina, I think we probably have the most uh, nurses that are elected right now. We have 46 counties in South Carolina. Four of our counties have elected nurses as their coroner. That's a pretty good number, considering that many nurses weren't even aware of this field for uh, just up until recently. 
recently, the past you know, 10, 15 years. I'm aware of a number of nurses around the country who are elected. They're kind of scattered around the country. There's one in Wyoming. I can think of one in up in the Washington area. But there are a number that are working in offices. Now, what capacity they're all in, That's I don't quite have the full vest of the understanding of that at this point because they're doing so many different roles. But we're growing in number, and right. that's what's important right now. And it looks like they're establishing themselves not only in larger cities such as yourself in uh, Charleston, but rural locations like Wyoming. So um, that's good to see. And I think they're starting to establish themselves for a couple of reasons, especially in an office where the coroner is an elected official. So the public really recognizes the importance of nurses, regardless of what area they work. Nurses are one of the most trusted professions. And then in the death investigation world, for a long time, uh, nurses weren't in that role. And the public recognizes their understanding of medicine, of understanding of emotional, mental well-being. And so when a nurse is on the ballot, the public recognizes sort of the special traits that they bring to that role. And nurses bring quite a skill set to the medical legal death investigation practice because of their training and education. So we understand physical assessment, psychological assessment. We understand medications. So if we should go into the home of a decedent and see pill bottles, we can easily take a look at those pill bottles and have an understanding of what their diseases are or what they're being treated for. And in my office, 80% of what we investigate are natural deaths. And so having somebody with a medical background is going to be very helpful in that setting. It seems like it would make you very intuitive, too, as far as the investigation process that, as you said, not only can you look at the scene and take information away from the scene, but having the medical knowledge to go with it just seems to be like an added plus. And I think also the ability to interview family members or witnesses. Nurses are used to talking to people when they're in crisis. So whether that's they've come into the emergency room with pancreatitis or they've uh, come to a doctor's appointment for some problem, it's the nurses on the front end who are assessing that and who are interviewing and trying to figure out what happened. And so we don't have a problem talking about personal issues. We don't have a problem dealing with someone who's in a crisis and emotional. And so that's really important when we are on a scene of a suicide or a homicide and somebody needs to talk to someone who's grieving but able to obtain a lot of information. For us, it's like doing a health history. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to to combine the idea of nursing with death investigation. You've made a very good case for it. So I'm definitely buying in to the idea that a nurse can do death investigation really, really well. I think it's important also, though, to kind of define that because it isn't just you're going to be a nurse and you're just going to go off and start doing autopsies, right? I know that you've been involved in doing education guidelines for forensic nurse death investigators. Can you talk to me about kind of how you approach it as a profession to be a forensic nurse in death investigation? What you probably referenced was a number of years ago through IFN, I chaired a committee to write the forensic nurse death investigation guidelines on what nurses should be trained in, what they should be able to do in this practice area. And it's really about using the skills that we have already mastered, if you will, and making sure that we use those in our investigative process. And so it's a combination of understanding the medical side and also the legal side and combining those. So I want to make sure I'm not saying it should be only nurses because I don't believe that. I believe that there is a great mesh between criminal justice and law enforcement and adding that medical piece to it. I think one thing nurses do bring, though, is that they bring another aspect of not 
not only investigating what that circumstance was, but also figuring out how to maybe prevent it from happening later. And so nurses come from a really holistic perspective. And so, yes, we assess and we plan and we have an action, but then we also try to prevent. And so if there's something that we're seeing a trend on, it's natural for nurses to do that because that's how we're trained. So part of it is assessment whether assessing the house, assessing a car, assessing their uh, medical history and their background, but then making a plan on how do I re-interview someone to make sure that I've gotten information that I need from a health standpoint, and then being able to come up with a conclusion, but then also figure out how to impact them in a positive way later. How did they cope? Did we refer them to the right resources? And then how do we take what we learned and try to make sure we don't have another tragedy in the same family first, but then in the community as a I like what you're saying about this in terms of how you approach the idea of being a forensic nurse in death investigation. Because my expectation when I hear that is that, well, IAFN, for example, is by its nature very oriented around sexual assault, of course. And when I did the open, I was like, oh, okay, this is about, you know, trying to look at those kinds of issues. And, uh, and I think you've brought me to school here a little bit because that's not necessarily – you shouldn't be pigeonholed in that regard. The approach that you're taking as a forensic nurse to death investigation is much broader than sexual assault. And when you use the word holistic, that really kind of brought that home to me that this is not just about one type of crime. It really can apply to a very wide range of death investigations with respect to the, the kinds of perspective and professional analysis that you bring to bear. Well, I think one thing sort of to also consider is that we work very closely with forensic pathologists, and their practice is the practice of medicine. So it makes sense that in all aspects of medicine, regardless of the area, physicians and nurses work hand in hand all the time. And so that should also take place in the area of forensic pathology and in death investigation. It is the practice of medicine to come up with a cause and manner of death. So having medical people involved from the very beginning, looking at that scene from a medical perspective, who has also knowledge in criminal justice, and, and again, not to take away from those, but that brings back a whole different picture back to the forensic pathologist, who again is practicing medicine in order to determine cause and manner of death. So it's a team approach. It's how do you have the best team who's being able to look at the whole picture in the right aspect to make sure we get the right cause and manner of death so then we can figure out how to prevent things. Yeah, I've always admired forensic nurses once I started kind of going to the meetings and learning about their specialty. And one thing that kind of drew me to them early on is that they really have taken to heart and practice the multidisciplinary team environment. They probably practice it in forensic science better than any other disciplines that I can think of that I've experienced and observed. And I've always thought that it's led to the investigations that they're doing being so much more thoroughly um, completed because it is a team effort and everybody's bringing in their perspective or their area of expertise. You know, I would agree. I would say in my office, we know what we don't know. And so we bring our skills and I know where my strengths are, but I don't have any problem asking someone who in a specialty area that isn't mine uh, to help me with something. And I think that is where we have a multidisciplinary approach to investigation. When we think we were all things to everyone and we are all things to an investigation that's where we're going to mess up it is a team approach all of us have a body of knowledge to bring and if we all work together then we get a much better answer and then again we can impact our communities later
I'm going to take two words with your descriptions that you've been giving us and kind of move to the, the next topic. And one of them is specialty and one of them is education. I've seen by watching what you do and also looking at publications and things like that that you've been involved with, Bobby Joe, that education and training is very important to you and that infant deaths has been one of those specialty areas that you've taken time to even write this book to educate those um, on these special types of death investigations. And so you want to tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write that book and possibly, you know, the types of cases that um, drew you to wanting to document it into a book. When I started in the coroner's office, I have to give some real credit to my mentors, which was Susan Tuning and Ray Wooten, who were in my office at the time. And they started, prior to me coming to the office, doing child death reviews on every child death that occurred in our county. They did them at the local level, uh, different than a state child fatality review team. We, we did them from a process of an investigative aspect. It was done seven days after the death. It was really to bring together a multidisciplinary team. And there were some things about how we started investigating to make sure that we investigated thoroughly differently than we were hearing what our colleagues were doing around the country. And I got invited to participate in the CDC's team to develop the SUDI training material. I participated in that and sort of helping to develop those guidelines and the training material that was released nationally. And then afterwards, I recognized that the training material was developed was fantastic, but there was so much more that we could be doing from an investigative standpoint. And some of those things we were doing in our office with three nurse death investigators, not sure if that's because we were nurses and so we're kind of approaching it a little differently. And so decided that it was time to write that and include some of the things that we were doing that when we were in the CDC development team, there were things that really weren't being discussed. So I wanted to expand on that. And so that became a a big goal was to sort of talk about some of the things we were seeing. Because of the way we investigated, we then had a prevention program we created in Charleston to try to decrease the number of deaths that were happening, and we saw a positive result. So how we investigated, the information that we got, taking that information back to the public to educate them on what we learned actually resulted in a decrease in deaths in our county. And so we saw that as a whole full process. So that's when I decided to take off writing and write about how our office actually investigated those deaths. Can you give us some insight into the kinds of things that are key in infant deaths? I think one of the problems that we're having is that it has changed over the years to some degree in terms of how to interpret, but also in terms of where the issues are. I assume that there's a fair number of issues related to opioids right now and things of that nature, but I have to say I don't know. Can you shed some light on how you do that interpretation and how that's evolved over time? give you three examples of things that our office was doing that we weren't really hearing was being done across the country. So the first one was what we call a double team approach to how we investigated. And anytime we had a call about an infant who died, typically the child is transported to an emergency room setting. And so our dispatchers would notify us that we had an infant en route who was in full arrest because we know that when infants are in full arrest, the likelihood of them being recovered is very unlikely. And we would go ahead and pre-dispatch someone to the emergency room setting and to the scene setting. That's from the coroner's office in conjunction with law enforcement. In most jurisdictions, they may only go initially to the hospital or not at all, is what I learned during the training. But we dispatched one to each location immediately. 
So we had someone doing infant investigation at the hospital, which is the body assessment, interviewing families and friends who might be present. And the other person at the same time was at the incident location, whether it was a home, a daycare setting, whatever that might be. And then before we each left that location, we would talk to each other and make sure that those stories matched. So if the person at the hospital saw some sort of mark on the child, we would immediately be looking for what might have caused that mark at the home. Or let's say during the interview at the hospital, the mom said the child slept in a crib, but my scene investigator tells me there's not a crib. We can address those things immediately to figure out whether or not we just need to re-clarify. Maybe we just don't have an understanding of what they say a crib means. So that double team approach has really sped up the investigative process. I think another thing is the incorporation of doll reenactments. We were using dolls uh, back in the mid-90s and early 90s to have a family member, the person who found the child and the person who placed the child, actually demonstrate for us that positioning. And so, again, it told us whether or not uh, the story was correct or not based on what position they showed us that the doll was in that may or may not have matched what we were seeing on the child. So that really impacted how our investigations were going. And then I would say how we interviewed. So in Charleston County now, if we have a child who dies, I would interview with law enforcement at the same time, but they let the coroner's office interview first because we interview a little differently. And we start off with those incidences that were furthest away from this account. So as opposed to saying, tell me what happened today, which is where all the emotion is, we start all the way up the back, that health history like nurses do, and say, tell me about your pregnancy. Tell me about the medical history of your family. And so we're able to get them calmer, and they're telling us things that they don't have any reason to have a lot of emotion about until we get up into the incident of today. And so we learned a long time ago we get a lot more information out of that case than some of our counterparts were doing in other areas. And I'll give you a fourth. I think the addition of that child death review that we did within seven days of the death, that let all of the investigative team come together. We literally play the 911 tape and listen to it. EMS responders and fire who were on that scene come to this to tell us what they saw, what they heard, what they smelled, because those things are not in their reports. And those things that they see, that they hear, that they smell, can make all the difference. For example, if they said, we smelled a lot of bleach, they'd been cleaning, or we saw there was five or six people in the house, but when we got there and interviewed, they're only telling us there were two in the house. Those kind of things are really important from an investigative standpoint, and we learned those in the child death review, and they can make a plan on what we needed to do to further investigate. So instead of three, I gave you four. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting, because last year, Lauren and I were able to participate in a workshop done by Dr. Jamie Downs in the Charleston area, same area as you, and Bonnie Armstrong who's in Texas with the Shaken Baby Alliance and in all four of those things that you identified as being critical in infant death investigations they were um, kind of going through what they were and how they needed to be implemented and just watching the attendees at that workshop and then talking to them and finding out that some of them were learning about those for the very first time had no idea that there was this thing as far as using dolls to reenact and 
made me turn my head to the yeah. side because I had was able to work with National Institute of Justice in 2009 to 2012 to put web-based training together for medical legal death investigations. Mm -hmm. And one of the topics that we chose was to do sudden unexplained infant deaths. And it was a three-part series that we took what was done by the CDC that they had in a DVD and redo it for web-based training. And one of those focused on that doll reenactment. And I remember kind of going through that and saying, wow, that can really make or break an investigation with the things you can find in that with just, as you said, very simple nuances that you observe with what, what goes on. Yeah, you know, when I was on the CDC team developing that training material, even something as simple as listening to the 911 tape was interesting to learn that a lot of jurisdictions weren't doing that, even amongst those of us who are creating the training material. And we have had a number of cases over the years where listening to the 911 tape, just that one piece of information changed our manner of death ruling. So maybe during the interview, mom or dad or the caretaker or whoever that was may tell us a story about what happened. And then you go listen to the 911 tape and there's a different reporting. And so just even that one piece of information can really make the difference. But unless we share that and train others and teach them what we've learned and give examples of how this really does work and this is important and see it in this case, and then hopefully they will incorporate in their jurisdiction and improve the way that they investigate, not just children's deaths, but all deaths. Yeah, speaking about all deaths, you're sitting there talking about it and being a toxicologist, I'm like, that is perfect to think about going back and listening to the 911 calls when you have a drug death or that you have clinical attention coming in and the 911 call could be very critical to determining what's going on at the time that the incident is starting for us so if I don't see that I'm definitely going to put that in for next time for Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, law enforcement has a history of listening to 911 tapes. So if they have an incident that's normal for them to do so, I think they listen to it for a different reason. And so I'm not listening for it to figure out whether a crime has been committed, and I'm not listening at it to figure out who the suspect is. I'm listening to try to figure out if there's information in there that helps my assessment to figure out cause and manner of death. That's why I'm listening. So we have a different reason that we're listening, but it's a great tool that a lot of us are missing out on. So what kind of cases have you been involved in over over the years? Talking before the podcast, you said that unusually uh, you all have had two mass fatality incidents in South Carolina. And of course, one is infamous, which was the church shooting. Have you all have a particular process that you've developed now for mass fatalities in response to the two mass fatalities? And tell us about the two incidents involved where uh, one much older than the church shooting. Isn't that right? That's correct. We in Charleston County have the unfortunate distinction of having two what we call mini mass fatalities in Charleston County. The first was an incident where we lost nine firemen in a Sofa Superstore fire. That was my first encounter with a large-scale event. 
And I will say at the time, we weren't prepared. We never thought it would happen. And I think for what we were working with, because we had a good baseline of what we needed to do just from a medical legal death investigation practice, we did really well, but boy, we learned a lot. And I would say that we learned a lot about processing the scene. We learned a lot about how to handle families, how to handle the media. We sort of have a sort of a joke in our office. You don't want to wake up the next morning and Lester Holt standing at your door. And unfortunately, that happened to us a couple of times. On the anniversary of the Sofa Superstore tragedy, the community was getting ready to have a memorial for those nine firemen, and that's when we had the shooting at the Mother Emanuel Church, where we lost nine parishioners. And we were able to take what we learned from the first nine and incorporate many of those things into the second nine. One thing uh, we've done a number of times over the years is present those two as comparisons. And does nine equal nine? And one thing we talk about in the mass fatality world and training is what defines a mass fatality. And what really defines a mass fatality is when it's beyond the scope of your area being able to handle it. And I think my office has decided 9 to 12 is probably the most we can handle with outside help. But it depends on the situation and what the circumstances are. Handling nine firemen who died in a fire is much different than handling nine individuals in a setting that didn't have the safety issues of a building that had collapsed. So there's differences between those things, but there's also a lot of similarities on how we handle families. For example, we didn't release anything to the press without talking to families first, and those are things we learned from the first one to the second one, but just the differences between those, and I would say to you, we have a much better plan now, and it's really all about resources and making sure that you know who is in your community, you know who your resources are, and who you can call for assistance. You don't want to have a tragedy in your community, and you don't know who the other players are. You don't know who the director of EMS is. You don't know who your chief of police is. You don't know who your emergency managers are. And we were fortunate that we knew who all those people and had great working relationships. So that's probably the, the biggest takeaway is making sure you prepare and just know who all of the other players are so that you can lean on each other because you're going to need those resources. Yeah, mass fatalities was one of the bigger topics here this week at IACME following the October 1 event that unfortunately happened here in Las Vegas. And I think that that was a very important topic that resonated with me when I was sitting there listening to it. In fact, they were saying, don't learn who you need at the event. Make sure that you've established those relationships and, you know, that it's not just like putting them on paper who those relationships are, but actually going out and meeting them. And if you have time and capabilities to do preparedness so that you're not trying to figure it out at the event. And that may sound pretty common sense like, but I think it's something that you could say over and over again, and it needs to be heard. Yes. Well, and you don't want to be standing there going, I need help, and you don't have to be his phone number. Yes. <laughs> you know, the other thing is just preparing your office, and that should something happen, what's the plan? You know, in South Carolina, we're used to having plans because we have hurricanes, so we have to plan for a hurricane <laughs> that's coming. How is our office going to be managed? Uh, who's going to be on call? Who's not? And so some of that came into play. I would say on the first one, we didn't really have a formalized plan for that. It just sort of happened. But on the second one, we definitely had some experience in how we put people into call 
who we said, don't come and help. I need you to go to sleep because the rest of the county continues to operate. So just like in Las Vegas, they had 59 deaths in that one tragedy, but the rest of their office continued to operate with the normal cases that they have every day. And I don't say normal lightly, but natural deaths still happened. Drug overdoses still happened. Suicide still happened during that time. And so not only did they have 59, but they also had the rest of their jurisdiction that they had to continue to maintain. So it's not just the incident. The office continues to operate. So same with my office. I had nine. But at the same time I had nine, I had other things happening around the county that you still have to be able to operate. So just having a plan of how you're going to do that and who you're going to call for assistance. Yeah, and risk mitigation is uh, you don't stop at A plan, you have plan A and plan B, right? (laughs) At least. (laughs) And then maybe plan C and then plan D. Well, our plan A for today was to do an excellent podcast with Bobby Joe O'Neill. I think we've accomplished plan A in this case. So uh, I, I very much appreciate having Bobby Joe on the on the program and certainly appreciate the excellent co-hosting, again, by Jerry Repera miller our chief scientist with the FTCOE. Thank you very much, Jerry, and thank you very much, uh, Bobby Joe, for being on the Just Science podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, John. And appreciate all you listeners out there uh, who are uh, making sure to uh, like the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever it is that you access it. And please make sure to visit the website of ForensicCOE.org. We'll make sure that there are links from the podcast page over to the IACME archives so you can learn more about many of these topics that Bobby Joe and and Jerry uh, covered today. Thank you very much for listening in. Next week on Just Science, John Fudenberg, the coroner for Clark County, examines the aftermath of the 2017 Las Vegas mass shooting. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.